to the Gay Man's Life Coach Podcast, the podcast for high-achieving gay men who have gone to therapy, want to feel better, and get exactly what they want in life. I'm your host, Harvard Law-trained founder and life coach, Jonathan Herzog. Welcome back. We have the one and only Evan Wolfson. Evan is a world-renowned civil rights lawyer. He was the founder and president of Freedom to Marry, the campaign that won same-sex couples the right to marry throughout the United States. Evan is the architect of the marriage equality movement since 1983, when he wrote his Harvard Law School thesis on gay people and the freedom to marry. Evan's work is featured in the documentary, The Freedom to Marry, is the author of the landmark work, Why Marriage Matters, was named one of the 100 most influential lawyers in America. The list goes on and on. The godfather of gay marriage, one of the most 100 influential people in the world. And having achieved in 2015 the goal he had pursued for 32 years, Evan closed down Freedom to Marry in 2016 and now advises diverse movements and causes around the world. Helped win the Freedom to Marry in Canada, Argentina, the UK, France, New Zealand, Ireland. Is helping in Australia, Cuba, the Czech Republic, Japan, and the list goes on and on. It is such a great honor to reconnect with Evan Wolfson. Elvin, welcome. All right, the architect of gay marriage. You fought for this for 32 years of your life. How did you know in your law school thesis in 1983 that this was the high variance path for civil rights? Well, I'm not sure I would claim to have known with that degree of precision, let alone that fancy language that, uh, that this would be as effective and important and, and even as central to my own life as uh, it turned out to be. But I did from that point on really believe that the best way to achieve change was to go for a transformative goal and ideally a goal that would also serve as a strategy for impelling further change. And I saw in the context of gay people that marriage would be such a goal and strategy. And I, I did understand that at, a, at an early age, uh, with not again, not with a great deal of theory behind it, but uh, I believe that if you thought about why is it that we as gay people are discriminated against, it's because of who we love. And then I asked myself, well, what is the central structure of love? What is the central legal mechanism for love? What is the central denial uh, with regard to our love? And what is the indeed even the central language of love in most societies and including ours? And I decided that was marriage. And therefore I decided that it was important to fight for the freedom to marry both as an important goal in its own right for all kinds of tangible and intangible reasons, but also as a strategy for affecting change. And over the years of doing it, I came to understand more theory and more fancy language and more explanations to back up that instinct as a law student. But that is something I came to then. I mean, I can tell the, the longer sort of backstory of what happened in the previous few years, I think that helped shape that uh, awareness so that when the time came to write in law school, I decided to write about claiming the freedom to marry. Uh, but that's, that's what I did come to in 1983. And that's what I then spent the next 32 years deepening and learning and proving. I mean, please, please do, because this is highly non-obvious, both at the time and now. Um, I mean, you laid out and fought for the case for the human rights case for marriage. And there's so many angles of this that are, again, just not obvious. So would love for you to share a bit more. Um, I mean, there, there's so many parts of this journey that I wanna get out, both the singular focus and determination and sheer will, but even again, the idea, because ideas really matter, right? That's the good news and the bad news, is ideas really matter. And you honed in on this particular idea. Um, so again, like, how did you know? And how did you have the conviction to stick with it? Yeah, well, I appreciate, you know, all the kind words that you just said. And you're absolutely right that, you know, having a good idea is important. And but so are the other elements that you just, you know, tick through, you know, focus, tenacity, determination, I would add clarity and strategy and hopefulness. Uh, also, figuring out how to bring other people in and how to make room for other people and to know what your place is and what the ways of, of enlisting the help of others, whether again, whether consciously or unconsciously. So there are many elements that contribute to success. 
Uh, I was not the first person to come up with the idea that gay people should be able to marry. Indeed, in the immediate aftermath of Stonewall, which is 1969, which we use as the convenient, somewhat not exactly accurate, uh, benchmark for the launch of the modern LGBT rights movement uh, in 1969, shortly after that rebellion uh, that sparked this movement, there were cases brought by couples all across the United States seeking the freedom to marry. By, the, by 1972, just three years after Stonewall, one of those cases amongst the many that had been brought even reached the United States Supreme Court. And all the courts, including the U.S. Supreme Court in 1972, rubber stamped the discrimination, rejected the idea that gay people should be able to marry. And those brave pioneering couples who sparked a good deal of national discussion at the time uh, failed and those cases failed and, and the work and the movement and the activism moved on. I came into the picture about 10 years later, give or take, as a law student. And I was writing about that early wave of cases, that first wave of litigation, and that no from society and from the courts, including the Supreme Court. And I argued that we should not take that no for an answer. Uh, and what I contributed was both a legal pathway for winning, but that was not particularly innovative. Uh, but I also contributed, I believe, of course, first and foremost, a call to action and a sense of empowerment and hope, but also the idea that it was not just a legal argument. It was not just, as you said, a human rights argument, though there is a human rights argument and aspect to it, and it draws on human rights aspects, as I argued, of, the, of our Constitution. But it was more than just law and more than just human rights, that we needed to engage values and, and society and culture. And the paper swirled through history and through popular culture and the movie Tootsie and, and, a hit, and a digression, if you want to look at it that way, into the story of feminism and the way in which women's empowerment and rise played a, a contributing role and needed to be engaged in this discussion, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the fact that it was so multidisciplinary and multi-themed probably contribute to the fact that it only got a B uh, because, <laughs> because the legal pathway was sort of almost tacked on toward the end, even though it did ultimately prefigure the, the entwined arguments that they, the Supreme Court ultimately embraced mm. uh, a mere 32 years later. But it was, it was the idea, it was the other elements over the course of time that you described. And it was also this understanding that marriage, as I said earlier, was both a goal and a strategy, and as such, as such as a strategy, it needed to be engaged not just for lawyers and not just as a legal matter and not just as a, as a case, but as a, an engagement with the public on multiple levels that would influence decision makers and bring us to the decision we wanted. I mean, by most every measure, you've led the fastest sea change in public support for a civil rights issue in our history, like as recent as 2004, 60% of Americans oppose gay marriage. How did in a mere 15 years, that view flip so fast? Yeah, so people sometimes do experience it, as you rightly said, as fast. And, and in certain <laughs> historical perspectives, it was fast, it, you know, compared to other far more fraught, far more intractable, far, more less, far less successful efforts to achieve change. Um, so in that sense, people are right to experience it as, as, as fast. Mm. Um, on the other hand, of course, it took more than 40 years. You know, again, mm. I, I worked on it for 32 years directly in the United States, right. but I wasn't the first one. I was building on the work of others at least a decade before me and discussions even before that. So it took decades to achieve this change. And part of the reason that people experience it fast is because in historical perspective, it was fast. Mm. But, the other, but another main reason I think people experience it fast is that transformative change, which this was. This is, not, mm. this is not an example of transactional change where we just asked for this and nibbled here and mm. then thought, okay, what can we get next? And then nibbled there and then thought mm. next. There was a transformative goal that went from something that people widely thought of as impossible and unattainable to then something that suddenly seemed like, oh my God, it's here already. What happened? It must've been inevitable. It must've been easy. Mm. Um, transformative change 
does take time. And, and the way that time is usually spent is slogging, 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 eking out wins, enduring losses, persevering through difficult patches. And then eventually the cumulative effect of, uh, of your work and of the building blocks and of the increments of success that you're eking out suddenly begin to have a much quicker motion. And it seems to come quickly at the end. And because many people tune in when things are happening around them, mm -hmm. uh, many people will cast it as fast for that reason as well, because the, the long time it took seemed to accelerate at the end. Uh, there are, I've learned many years since doing this work, you know, there are theoretical frameworks for understanding this argument. For example, in a book called The Uprising, or This is an Uprising, I think it's called, uh, two authors, both named Engler, uh, write about the distinction between transformational change of the kind I just described and transactional change. And one of the differences they talk about is, is what I just described. And they give this metaphor of imagine a statue of a dictator perched on this great giant monument to that dictator standing on top of pillars. And you begin shaking a pillar and then you figure out a way to start shaking several of the pillars and you shake and you shake and you shake and you shake and different sectors of society and engagement, law and politics and protests, et cetera, are shaking and shaking. For a long period of time, you're shaking and shaking and quote, nothing is happening. And then one of the pillars comes down and then the next and then the next and then the, you know, it comes down because the cumulative effect of your shaking, even if it seems like quote, nothing is happening, is you are creating change and creating the increments of gradation of, of opportunity that get you to where you wanna go. President Obama, the day we won in the Supreme Court gave this absolutely beautiful statement in the Rose Garden, um, which I remember watching with my staff as we paused for a moment in our post-victory, pushing it out and explaining and, and leveraging the, the work to, to hear what he had to say. And he gave this, he said, change comes slowly, change is hard. There are, you know, for days and days and years and years and years, it'll seem like nothing's happening and you're laying the groundwork, but nothing's happening. And then there are these days like today where, where change seems to come like a thunderbolt. And that's, that's the psychological reason why people experience it as quick, in addition to some legitimate understanding of it as quick in historical terms. But the reason I'm spending so much time pushing on this notion of quick is that change took time. Mm -hmm. It took tenacity. It took perseverance. It took endurance. And it took strategy. And it took sustained hopefulness. Mm. Change took leadership, Evan. That thunderbolt, that convergence of energy and will and effort, that didn't just happen. That was in the form of you and your leadership. So well, I just want- I, I thank you. Uh, yeah, and of course, I'm, I am very proud of my role. And, and I do agree that leadership played a role and I do agree I played a role as leader. But I, but I also want to make sure people understand that leadership is not some magic thing that we, you know, years later sort of endow mm -hmm. in retrospect, this notion that you know, Martin Luther King smote the ground and we achieved civil rights or Evan Wolfson had an idea and and nagged people incessantly. And that's how we won. It is an ingredient. It is a component, but it is only one component. And everybody can play, if not a leader role, everybody can play an essential contributing role in making a difference. And it's not about finding some magic leader who will be our next, you know, quote, you know, Martin Luther King or, or so on. That's, that wasn't the crucial element of change. It played a role, I played a role, uh, but what really played the key roles were the combination of hope, strategy, clarity in our work and tenacity, sticking with it. The late Justice Ginsburg said that the change in people's minds and hearts is what precedes, comes before the changes in the law. Do you agree with that? In general, I agree. And uh, it, it is certainly a very important and some often necessary pathway for achieving particularly trans, you know, big change. 
um, where we went, for example, from 11% support for the idea that gay people should be able to marry when I wrote my law school thesis to 63% support when we ultimately went in for the win in 2015. For that kind of change, yes, I agree. Uh, but 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 there there are examples also of where uh, political action can lead change, where legal uh, results can lead change, etc. It's not always a bottom up idea first uh, transformation, uh, though that is a major and important way to make change. And where you don't have the law on your side and where you don't have the power on your side and where you don't have the majority on your side and where you don't have the understanding and what uh, some writers have called the moral imagination to envision a different world that, you know, for example, a, a Dr. King or a Thurgood Marshall should, um, then you do have to at least pay attention to this need to create the climate around the decision makers in a way that will impel them and help them to do the right thing. How did you overcome, Evan, all the naysayers and the critics? And this goes to the point of leadership because most certainly at the time, um, and like not just from the far right, but from the far left on the emphasis and the focus on marriage and the institution of marriage. How did you not let both the perfect become the enemy of the good of your critics and also not let the haters get to you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, one of my key rules of activism is you don't need every, you need enough. So mm. I would not say I overcame all the naysayers, uh, mm. both, both in terms of within the community and friends and, and you know, people on our side, there are certainly are still people, activists and others who don't think we should have fought for marriage or don't think it was particularly important or are really glad we won and got it over with and now let's move on, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and or who minimize it and and who uh, wish we had never done it. I mean, all that kind of stuff. Um, I, I don't think I've persuaded all of them, uh, though, though we did persuade uh, uh, enough of them alongside the critical core of persuasion that we did to get people to our to do the work um, to make it happen. And nor have we persuaded, you know, all the opponents, the true opponents out there in the world. We went from, as I said, 11% support to 63% support. And every year since our win remains the gift that keeps on giving the, the marriage conversation and the values and the allies and the assets that we brought in all continue to propel further change both in terms of other gains with regard to trans people or other gains with regard to gay people, et cetera, but also even with regard to marriage. We, every year now, they do a poll on basically on the anniversary of our winning this month. And each year, support has continued to not only grow in terms of reaching new heights, we're now at 71% support, according to Gallup this week or, or last week, um, but, but the, the support also broadened. Those who were formerly opposed now support it. So, for example, we now have majority support for the freedom to marry, even amongst those still willing in our country to call themselves Republican. We have majority support amongst those over 65. We have majority support amongst almost every religious group, those who identify as religious, et cetera. And so the conversation and, and the momentum proceed, but we still have. You know, if we have 71% support now, we still have, you know, roughly a third, slightly less than a third, who remain opposed and resistant and hostile. And what's unfortunate in our country is that that rump of opposition, as, in, as on many questions, exercises disproportionate political power because of the dysfunctions of our political system. And we can get to that if you want. Um, so... I, I, it wasn't about persuading everybody to agree, either within our movement or out there in the public. It was about getting enough agreement, getting a critical mass. And part of the way I was able to persuade people within our movement enough that we could do this was by talking about the importance and making the case and, and laying out why marriage was a, a, an important goal, but also for many, it was why it was an important strategy. In other words, that by winning the freedom to marry and even the work to win the freedom to marry along the way, we would bring along other goals and priorities that they may have considered more important. 
And in the beginning, that was a theory. But now, of course, we can see that that absolutely was true, that the win of the freedom to marry propelled further advances with regard to non-discrimination, with regard to trans rights, with regard to trans visibility, with regard to youth empowerment, with regard to seniors and uh, bringing access to them, with regard to global progress, et cetera. Did it solve all these things? Of course not. The work continues 100%. I mean, no one ever thought that this was going to be the end of the work, or at least, you know, I never thought that and never said that. Um, but did it massively advance us on all fronts? Absolutely. And because there remains opposition and there remains serious political problems in our own country that are even, in a sense, really above the pay grade of LGBT, but are exploiting and attacking LGBT for their own ends, the work remains uh, on that front as well, uh, even though we have achieved the win of the freedom to marry, and even as support for the freedom to marry continues to grow and broaden. Take us, Evan, if you will, to some of the darker moments when you're in the trenches, uh, hope isn't so obviously in sight. How did you stay the course, avoid burnout, avoid getting jaded? And what were the thoughts driving you? Like, did you consider this a fight? Did you consider this the work? Like, how did you describe to yourself what you were doing and stay in it for 32 years? I mean, we're talking now in a moment and age of TikTok, right? Where the attention span is 15 seconds, 32 years. Yeah, well, first of all, I would say I was lucky in that I always inherently have a hopeful temperament. I, and I'm able to compartmentalize or tune out that which would distract or deflect from that hopefulness, which is not to say, of course, that I'm not cranky and irritable and difficult and a pain in the neck and all that. I mean, you know, of course I am. Uh, but when it certainly when it comes to work or when it comes to achieving what I want or achieving change, um, I, I'm hopeful. I, I believe we can do it. And I think that is the essential first requirement of, of succeeding is to believe you can do it. And then to convey that belief to others, because then that's what helps make them want to join you. And that may be necessary to your success. Wallowing in negativity, in uh, despair, cataloging the problems endlessly, watching all the news more than you really need to watch it enough to know what's going on, just in order to make yourself feel miserable or to feel cynical or to feel um, hopeless is not a good way to succeed. And so at some point you need to turn that, that stuff off. And the way I usually say it is don't focus so much on the pr problem, focus on the pathway. And I was good at doing that. I was very forward looking. I, I really always saw that we, I always believed we were winning. Mm. I described what we were doing as winning even where we were, we, where we had lost the battle, I talked about and coined the phrase losing forward. There is a way in which you can engage the work. And as long as you have a clear strategy and as you know what the pathway is and you keep going, even a loss can bring you assets and allies and pieces and accomplishments that if you keep doing the work, you, you pull together for the next fight and the next fight on your strategy, on the pathway. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Don't make the, as you said, the perfect, the enemy, the good, and don't make a loss more than it is. Uh, so that was definitely something I had temperamentally. What helped me get there, I think, was both the luck of having that, discipline in sticking with that hopefulness and conveying hopefulness, sometimes to the annoyance of others, endlessly, always, I would listen to the conversation, I would listen to their problem, but then I would always turn it to, but what if we tried this? Or have you thought about that? Or, okay, here's where we are, but what about this, et cetera. And that was also true, by the way, when we won. You know, I was happy anytime we won an increment, anytime we won a building block, anytime we won a battle, anytime we won a step forward. But I didn't really get distracted by it either. And, you know, where some people might have lurched between despair over a loss or excessive exuberance over a victory. For me, it was what's next, what's next. Not that we can't celebrate and not that we shouldn't celebrate our victories, we should. And we should always be showing people how we're winning. We should be putting points on the board as my colleague, Mark Solomon used to talk about. Um, we should always be showing people, here's where we are on the pathway. Here's how we can go. Let's, this is great, we're winning, we're winning. Uh, 
hang on, we're winning. Here's what we got out of this, et cetera. Uh, but I was always looking forward. And uh, what part of what sustained that, just to answer that part of your question, was a combination of you know being very lucky to have a wonderful partner in life, my husband, now my husband, uh, to have uh, friends, to have family that's very supportive, to have pleasures like travel or theater or reading or unfortunately eating uh, and to indulge those and to not be one of these people who we felt like I could never take a vacation or could never take a break or couldn't tune it out and go to the theater, et cetera. I think it's important to sustain yourself for the long haul and allow yourself the pleasures. My friends basically knew that when we were out, I didn't really want to talk about work. I wanted to mm. tease and joke or talk about public affairs or the movies or theater or, you know, or each other or gossip or whatever. Um, I, I didn't spend all my time every minute worrying, 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 because I had the innate confidence that we were on the right track. We had the right strategy and we were going to win and we wouldn't be able to persuade everybody, but we would be able to persuade the majority because the majority was fair. Okay. There's so much here, Evan. Uh, I'll start with the last part you just said. Like something I, I, I hear often, we encounter often is like, I don't have the evidence for that belief. Where's the evidence to support that belief? And you're saying over the span of 32 years, right? We could concoct all this evidence of how it's not working, of how it's not succeeding, of how you're not winning. But you maintained, you chose to maintain this set of beliefs that fueled you, not from a place of worry, not from a place of despair, from a place of hopefulness and possibility. Like first, I guess, like what were the feelings guiding you throughout the way? And second, like you can have the hopefulness, but then still be like, okay, I'm gonna ditch this path <laughs> or like go elsewhere or try something else or it's not working. Like there's a set of beliefs, like a set of premises that you maintained that allowed you to keep the hope, keep the belief, and keep the possibility all at once without burning out. Yeah, I, I guess the way you're saying it back to me, though, I, I do want to underscore, this wasn't just some belief that I just sort of dug my heels in and then refused to look at the world and tuned out everybody and, you know, preached as some kind of religion. I, I came to this view that we could win the freedom to marry and that we should work to win the freedom to marry, that winning the freedom to marry would serve as an engine for further change. Having studied history and, and continuing to study history, not just after you know, writing this law school thesis, but- Right, you but know, you stuck really to that up. belief, but you stuck yes. to that analytical rigor and that foundation and you didn't abandon it when the, when the going went tough. That's true, yes, I did not abandon it when the going went tough or because the going got tough. That is definitely true. But, but all through, I was listening to people's arguments. I was listening to counterclaims. I read some of the you know, attacks on my philosophical position. I don't really think of those personal attacks, but there was, as you said, within the gay world and certainly in the larger world, uh, you know, a lot of punditry and academic argument and activist argument and feelings that people had that this was wrong, that this was either a bad idea or a dangerous idea or uh, the wrong idea from the get-go. Um, and, and, and I, you know, I read that and I listened to it and I argued with people to an extent and, um, and grappled with it. And meanwhile, I was also doing my own empirical testing of my own ideas through the conversations I was having and the work my team and I were doing and the engagement with my colleagues and, and listening to their nuances or claims. And we along the way had to not change the strategy in the sense of abandoning it, but we had to figure out ways to bring people into the strategy by, in some cases, explaining it in, in a fuller way. So for example, once our, our work to win the freedom to marry brought about the chapter that included this question of, well, what about civil union? Would civil union be good enough? We had to think about, okay, how, how is that true? Some people would have totally been satisfied only with civil union. Others saw civil union as a potentially really great stepping stone to marriage, although it might take a long time to get from that placeholder to the next, to the victory. And others saw civil union as a diversion, as a, as a true 
detour that would really take us in the wrong direction. We had to figure out how to engage those different camps of the well-meaning, let alone the opponents out in the world. Uh, and so we didn't change our strategy, but we did figure out how to bring in a share of each of those groups into the strategy and how to, in some sense, uh, either accommodate you know, their concerns or even make use of their concerns and, and not just their concerns, make use of what they contributed. So even though I was identified early on as you know, Mr. Marriage and the one who was saying, we don't, we don't want civil union, we want marriage. And that, and that was in my law school thesis, even before the word civil union had been coined. Um, we, you know, I talked about, I forgot what I called it. I had some non-marital marriage status or some phrasing that was the precursor to this idea of what became civil union and talk about why it wasn't good enough, alternate marital status or something. Um, so even though I was Mr. Marriage and was the one who was saying, no, we want marriage. We don't want gay marriage. We don't want partnership alone. We don't want other things as a substitute. We want marriage itself. I, I never said we shouldn't take along the way. So I found ways to accommodate the, the different priorities and different perspectives of others and integrate them into the central strategy in a way that both allowed us to not just be fighting constantly with our own about something we had not won on either front and a way to further bring people along on the longer haul of the bigger, bolder, goal that I had set. And so through these different stages and nuances over the years, and of course, with a lot of, you know, angst and drama, it wasn't all as linear and clear as I'm describing it now, we figured out how to sustain and stick with our strategy while at the same time incorporating into the work changes, developments, catalysts, catalyzed actions that we had partly catalyzed and that others catalyzed and how and to keep bringing together this critical mass even of people who didn't fully agree with us to get us where we needed to go and and again a lot of that was shaped by the work of staying in in the work the tenacity a lot of it was shaped by the relationships I, I sustained with people even people I disagreed with and this is another important element I, I tried to take the high road I tried not to burn bridges I tried to really stick to my strategy and the work and you know people would have experienced me as a Johnny one note in many cases but at the same time I would laugh with people I would talk with people I had friends I disagreed with. I would be able to walk away from you today and, and say, okay, you do your thing, I'll do mine, let's not fight, let's just keep going, in a way that we were able to come back to each other later. Mm -hmm. And so that lived experience of what I think of as good activism and good relationships, even while sticking to your guns, combined with lessons from history, which I read and read and read and read, because that was one of my major sources, both of instruction and inspiration, um, allowed me to keep doing that. Let's take that little detour if you're open to it, which is, it sounds like a very central part of that sustained will, that sustained determination is this life outside. This, that you were able to create happiness and fulfillment and joy outside of the work and outside of the contingent results of the change you were bringing. So if you're open, could you share a bit about your own story of finding your own happiness, creating your own marriage and, and bond? Um, like that, that own journey for yourself, um, what, what, what that's been like? For many, many years when I was doing this work, I would joke with people that, you know, I was the one who could do, uh, who could teach, but not do, you know, that like, you know, you know, that I was the one, Mr. Marriage was single. Why was Mr. Marriage single? Uh, I would joke about, you know, those who can't do litigate. And I would go around, uh, saying, you know, the, it's one of the ironies of my life that I'm probably closer to winning the freedom to marry for gay people than I am to having a relationship myself. So I was whinily single for many of those years, wanted to be in a relationship. And, and by the way, that underscores a point, which is that I didn't actually fight for the freedom to marry or set marriage as a goal or believe in mar marriage should be our goal because I myself wanted to get marriage, married. It was for all these other theoretical and historical and, and you know, strategic reasons 
reasons and so on, you know, along with my own desire to be in a relationship. But other people were much more personal about it, much more um, uh, drawing on their own personal desires. And for me, that actually wasn't what it was about. Although, of course, when I did ultimately have the opportunity, it was massively enriching. And it turned out all that theory and strategy and history and stuff was right. You know, it actually played out well. Anyway, so for most of this time, I was single or, you know, in a short-term relationship, et cetera. And, uh, you know, it was only significantly late in the game that I had the luck of meeting the guy I, you know, really actually immediately knew I was going to want to be with. And it took him a little longer. Um, and we began seeing each other and then dating, et cetera, et cetera. And how did you know? Uh, he was funny and smart and cute and good and like me and uh, uh, we clicked and, you know, there it was, you know, and again, you know, it's not like we got married the next day, got married 10 years later, but, um, but I, from the very first day I saw him, I was like, okay, I want to see you again. And we're going to, we're going to do this. And we, we'd have early, not arguments, but playful debates about, is this dating? Are we, can, can we say we're dating? I mean, uh, because he would resist all the labels and so on. And I would be, okay, whatever, whatever you want to call it, you know, blah, blah, blah. but actually this is dating. Um, but from the get-go, we were both pretty serious about spending time together and um, being together and enjoying each other. And from really that first day, we have been together ever since. So it, now it's over 20 years that we've been together and over slightly over 10 years that we've been legally married. Um, and that, I, I wouldn't say that changed, you know, what I was doing or so on, but it certainly brought me immense happiness and sustenance in my ability to keep going and allowed me to even further be able to say, okay, this is getting too horrible, frustrating, difficult, annoying, intractable, whatever. I'm going to take a trip and go visit Easter Island or go to Machu Picchu or go on safari, et cetera. And, you know, we were very lucky to have the opportunity to do things like that. And my husband is very good at travel planning and maximizing frequent flyer points and which credit card you should use to earn which. So I was the beneficiary of that. And that became a, a feature of our relationship. And th that, those trips, both long and short, both, you know, exotic and more centered around visiting friends or family, were restorative and kept me going. It's not luck, Evan. <laughs> well, I, you know, it isn't only luck. I, I do agree with that, but it is also luck. And one of the things I would always say to people as we were fighting and so on is, um, you, you, you do everything you can do. You have to be smart. You have to be strategic. You have to be tenacious. You have to suck it up. Sometimes you have to keep going and, you know, you have to be adaptable, all these things that are part of the work that you need to do. And you make room for luck because sometimes things do come your way. Sometimes something historical will happen that opens a door. Uh, you know, it makes a difference who gets elected. It makes a difference, um, you know, maybe if there's a, a war or if some other country leads the way and gives you an ability to argue, look, look at Canada, look at this. So it is sometimes luck. And I do recognize that in my life, I am very lucky. And at the same time, you know, I have worked and done what I've done, but I, but I wouldn't deny the role of luck. And because none of us can control luck, you just have to do the best you can and make room for luck. And, and sometimes luck happens. Um, it's interesting, Evan, because I've had my own journey and arc with you and, and your work and have come to the work I'm doing now in part from this reflective journey. Um, something you just described that resonated with me was in my work in the fight for universal basic income, um, I thought about it in somewhat of a similar way you described your fight for marriage. Um, and I would even tell people contemporaneously of like, well, uh, I can't find happiness, but I can provide and create the conditions for happiness and for opportunity for others. And I would sort of buy into this story um, that created burnout for me in, in that work. And I have to say like, um, I 
in part because of a lot of what I now see as internalized homophobic social conditioning and garbage thoughts, like gay men can't be happy or gay men can't have monogamous relationships or marriage. I had so deeply internalized this into my own identity and being that um, I would stand for confirmation bias my way for seeing gay men in marriages conclude, oh, they're all open, they're all non-monogamous. So what is this whole thing with, with marriage? And I have to say, it's been my own work and journey and arc in relation to this that I guess one, one data point I, I want to cite too as well is a recent uh, finding that the incidence of, for instance, suicidal ideation alone is estimated at 30 to 40% among gay men. And what this whole journey the last number of years um, has shown me and I'm curious your thoughts on this, is that all the institutional, the cultural, the legal, the political, social change, one of the vanguards, I think, of the civil rights fights of this era is the internalized limiting beliefs and narratives that we create results worse than our own worst enemies could ever imagine. And you can see this in the data on, on drug use, on mental illness, suicidal ideation and the like. And so I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are on this, both in your own work and overcoming your own self-limiting self beliefs and having internalized the garbage thoughts from others um, and seeing this also play out. Some comedian once said, now I don't remember who it was, you know, if you can get through life, you can get through anything. And I, I think that's, you know, a funny comment because it underscores, you know, life is difficult for everybody. We all have to find our way. We all have to find our happiness. We all have to transcend the times inevitably when we're not happy. And, you know, happiness is important. And, and I've talked about it a lot already. And I feel lucky to be happy and so on. But it's not like I'm, you know, whistling all the live long day. And so, you know, every minute and so on even with what I consider my own luck and good fortune in life and so on. And, and now with success, it's hard for all of us. And I think it's important to appreciate that, uh, to give yourself some perspective, whoever you are, when you're going through the inevitable difficult times. And, you know, I've alluded several times to taking inspiration from history and reading of the struggles of others and the lives of great heroes like, you know, Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt, who, you know, by the way, we talk about it as a couple, but they each had their own very different lives and personalities and complex relationship of love and also resentment and hurt, et cetera. And they both had to navigate through that, even as they did the great epic things in, 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 you know, in the world, uh, King, et cetera, Lincoln, and, and, and others, but these are, those are actually the main ones I would often, I take my most reliable, frequent inspiration from. And, you know, in some ways, none of them was happy. <laughs> they were not certainly, you know, happy all the live long day, et cetera, et cetera. They each had their demons. They each had their challenges. They each had their long patches of whether you want to call it depression or melancholia or just, you know, unhappiness, frustration, et cetera. So I think having some perspective that tells you that everyone is struggling, everyone is trying to make of life what they can, uh, might help remind each one of us to be patient with ourselves, to be loving of ourselves, to be patient of others, and to try to really find happiness in the ways it can really come, uh, which, is, which is, and this is, I guess, my second big point, which is not to see, and this is easy to say and hard to do, not to rest your happiness on the validation of others. Uh, and, you know, and we all hear that and it sounds like it is kind of cliche. And, you know, it's, like I said, it's much easier to, to say than to do, but I have an ego. I want to be remembered as you know, the leader and the one who brought marriage and the, you know, the one who affected human rights and all those things, Time Magazine and others called me and so on. And of course I take pleasure in them and have, you know, ego strokes from them and so on. But I also would have to constantly remind myself and have been relatively good at not 
letting that be where I sit myself and what I'm looking at constantly in order to find my happiness. I try to go out and find the other things in my own life on my own responsibility. And then I've been lucky to find them, you know, so many of them, but does it work every minute, every day? No. So I just, the, the lesson I would give to you or to anyone else is don't overimagine that everyone else has, you know, gotten this down and you're the one that's out and therefore you can't do it or whatever. And don't expect it to come handed to you from others, but find what it is that gives you pleasure, what gives you satisfaction, what gives you a sense of accomplishment. And will that be enough to keep you happy every minute of every day? No, because that's not how life works. And we can agree to disagree on the semantics here, but this is why I insist that it's not luck because this is a cultivated skill. A couple of things I've, I've learned and discovered are life is 50-50, 50% negative emotion, 50% positive emotion for every human. Gay men, 50% are in monogamous relationships, 50% are not. The lie is though that you're wired a certain way or that you can't be happy or that you can't have monogamy. It's a choice. And that to me is the discerning between the internalized limiting belief borrowed from someone else saying, I can't have that, or I am this way and therefore I can't feel that way versus I have the choice, I have the agency to choose. Learning that we are not our thoughts, that our thoughts create our feelings, that our feelings create our actions, to me, opened up this entire world, plus the historical context for gay men in particular, which was 50 years ago, being gay was deemed a mental illness. 30 years ago, one in 10 gay men were dying of AIDS. 20 years ago, being gay was a crime. Seven years ago, Evan Wolfson, marriage was illegal. So there's some historical context for the higher incidence of the thoughts like, I am wrong, or I am not enough, or I'm not good enough. And you are such an example of what's possible for when, yes, you consciously cultivate internal validation, a sense of you provide your own sense of purpose, fulfillment, and joy outside of the socially contingent rewards, the approval of others. And what's so powerful about your example, Evan, is that you not only have this, but this fuels the change you bring about because it's sustainable, right? It lets you fuel that from a place of positive energy, of possibility for 32 fucking years. That's mind blowing. Well, I, I don't, I mean, I appreciate, again, the compliments and, and the kind words. And I agree with the main point you're making that um, we, we all can make choices and we have to make choices and we shouldn't, we shouldn't allow ourselves to feel prisoners of our circumstances, whatever those may be. I use the word luck because I do also want to acknowledge that some people have easier circumstances. Some people have had other opportunities handed to them. Others have you know, earned them and not gotten them and others have earned them and gotten them. Um, so there is, there is some luck out there in the world, but, but it is not a direct correlation. You know, people like to throw around terms like privilege and so on and so on. And, you know, there is such a thing as privilege and I certainly have privilege and so on. But, you know, many people who have a lot of privilege are unhappy or make bad choices, et cetera. And many people who have less privilege make good choices and are happy and find ways to move forward. So we can't all, we can't ascribe it to all those things, uh, which is what you're saying. And, and what, and which is, I mean, you're saying we shouldn't let those things define ourselves. And I absolutely agree with that. That doesn't mean there isn't some degree of luck out there, but again, we, we all are on the planet. This is our time. This is our place. We own it. And let's um, let's make, the best of what we can do. And there are many ways to make good uh, progress in your life that history can give us examples, that others, the stories of others can give us examples, that empathy can give us examples, that patience, that focusing on your own um, opportunities as opposed to wallowing in your denials can, can all give you. Uh, and you know, then the time passes and we've all made what we've made of our time here. Um, you know, I spent, I, I haven't talked about this as an influencer, but I think it is something that contributed to my 
I don't know about my temperament, but it contributed to my approach to life. I spent two years in the Peace Corps and I lived in a small village in West Africa, you know, half a mile away from even the nearest dirt road. I, I'm not half a mile, sorry, half an hour away from the nearest dirt road. When I moved into that village, um, there was no electricity that came while I was there, et cetera. And the friends I made in that village over two years were, you know, poor. <laughs> Uh, and had virtually nothing by American standards, at least in terms of material uh, well, and even in terms of you know prospects for advancement in life and all the kinds of things that we think of as you know the things we want and that some of us are lucky to have more of and so on. Um, but that did not dictate whether they were happy or not. Um, did some were happy, some weren't. Some were struggling, some weren't. Some wanted this or that, others wanted something else, et cetera. Uh, and I think that's important to understand. And the things that we thought, you know, that I as a 21 year old plunked down in West Africa thought would make a difference, like whether I had electricity and whether I had even had a refrigerator that worked on anything other than a candle or um, whether I had to pump my water as opposed to having a shower every day, et cetera. Uh, you know, I mean, it's a lot better to have the things I didn't have, but those were not the things that made my time there hard until I learned how to overcome. It was more being in a new place, not having friends yet, uh, feeling isolated, sometimes having communication gaps because my values were this and theirs were that, and we had to learn to understand each other. Those, that's what would, was hard. And as I learned through human relationships and engagement and fun and work, to make connections and to find the good in where I was, I, I learned an important life lesson and uh, that helped too. So I, I think all of us, if we could just get out of certainly any sense of despair or imprisonment from whatever the circumstances may be and take inspiration from the stories of others, the struggles of others, the history we can read, the people around us, you can always find someone who's in a better place or in a happier place or in a helpful place and, and open the door to that and, and then keep going. Uh, that's, how you, that's how you move forward in life. Viktor Frankl, the Holocaust survivor, said, there's a space between the circumstances of life and the way we feel. And that's the choice we have to imbue it with, with whatever meaning we give to it, the way we interpret the circumstances, the thoughts we choose that generate the feelings of our life. Now, Evan, one of the many remarkable achievements of yours as well that I'm very inspired by is that you achieved your goal and then you closed down the organization. You didn't let it get taken over ideologically. We've seen a lot today of institutional mission creep, expanding beyond its intended purpose, raising money to raise money, and like, what gave you the courage and conviction to be full throttle for 32 years, to achieve the goal and to shut it down? So partly it was that that was how I had sold it in the first place. In other words, mm -hmm. I had gotten buy-in from colleagues in the movement and activists that something like a freedom to marry was needed to supply something that we didn't yet have to be able to drive a, a, an affirmative and sustained campaign to win. So a campaign model, uh, bringing that to our movement and to the work. And as an addition to the important work that these pillar organizations of which I had been part um, were supplying, not a competition, not a, uh, not a duplication, et cetera. So I sold it as such to the activist colleagues and to the funders who I was able to bring in and get support from and build this machine and this addition to the work in order but to- But you follow through on that commitment. Yeah, so, so partly that was always the vision of this. And, and you know, there are different kinds of organizations. There are some organizations that are institutions and that are pillars that serve multiple constituencies, even within the same movement that work on multiple battles and causes and have to go from one to another and so on. And we need those. And I was a longtime partner and had worked at one of them and was partnered with you know the ACLU, Lambda Legal, 
National Center for Lesbian Rights, Gay and Lesbian Advocates and Defenders. These are the pillar institutions of our movement. And without them, I would not have been able to marshal the campaign that was needed. Uh, and we relied on their work and their contributions and their in engagement and leadership in, in that work. But at the same time, they were not able to supply something we needed. And so I created the entity to supply what was needed by those organizations and others to drive a campaign to focus on a strategy instead of just pieces or periods and to uh, make the whole, whole greater than the sum of the parts. And so that, that was the vision I sold. It worked out. And when the time came, it was, okay, that's what I said I was going to do and I was going to do it. But there was another part to it, which is what you're, I think, looking for, which is that I had also been preaching for a long time that there's a distinction between a movement and a campaign. Those are different things. That there's a difference, as I said, from between institutional pillar organizations and a campaign model. And that a campaign like ours succeeds when we do well on what I call the ladder of clarity, which is clarity of goal, mm. clarity of strategy. What is the pathway toward that goal? Mm. Clarity of the vehicles, what are the structures, the actions, the, the work, the, the, the partners, the allies, et cetera, that are needed, the programs that are needed to achieve that strategy, and clarity and action steps toward the goal. Mm. And once you've achieved that goal, you have now, this campaign has succeeded. The work of the movement remains. But the campaign and the team I built, ooh, the team I built to, um, to drive that strategy to, and leverage the movement to the goal had fulfilled what it had been designed to achieve. And so rather than just turn it into something that it may not be appropriately designed for, or that it that wasn't built along this ladder of goal first, then strategy, then structure, uh, I wanted to role model the importance of that understanding of how to achieve success. <clears throat> and for that reason too, I thought it was the right thing to do to shut yeah. down. And now, you know, periodically, including in the time we're right now, people will say, well, do you think we're going to have to bring back freedom to marry? Do you think we're going to need freedom to marry? And the answer is, we don't need freedom to marry, mm. but we do need to do the work. We, and that work happily can be done now by a, many of the partner organizations I just ticked off, as well as new organizations and others and allies who we've brought in the work of, uh, defending the gains we've won, of reinvigorating our democracy, of standing in solidarity with the other causes that are under attack, and of uh, building on the assets that we've accumulated to get the job done. We don't need the tailored Freedom to Marry campaign that existed to win these things. We need a similar kind of campaign approach, even if not a, an actual organization. We need a similar kind of strategic engagement, and we need the actual involvement of each one of us to keep doing the work that's needed to uh, achieve the goal of defending what we've won, but even more importantly, of re reinvigorating our democracy and making the country even better. It's intellectual honesty, it's integrity, and again, it's leadership. Because it's not inevitable, and I'm mindful of our time here, but even in some of the organizations you mentioned, all the incentives are for institutional mission creep, for ideological creep for continued expansion for its own sake. And the intellectual honesty, the integrity, the commitment you had with the clarity of your conviction, it's not to be understated. Evan, you said that by freeing gay individuals as our constitutional morality requires, we will more fully free our ideas of love and thus more fully free ourselves. I can't think of a, better example of what's possible um, than you and your leadership and your voice and your example. And I wonder if you have any concluding thoughts or parting words you wanted to um, share with us today. Thank you for the kind words and you know, for quoting from my paper, my, my, my 1983 paper. And as you note there, the we is not the we that people necessarily might have expected. The we there is not we gay activists or we gay people or we gay people who want to get married. The we was Americans, <clears throat> human beings. Sure. I, I, didn't, I didn't 
buy into yeah. an artificial exclusion that I myself was working to challenge and erode. And I also believe that the audience was not just us as gay people. It was all good people whom we could bring to our side, even those who were not yet with us, uh, the reachable but not yet reached, as I called them. So I defined myself as part of the we, not in opposition to the we. <clears throat> but I, I guess the most important thing about hope and the importance that hope plays, and I really do believe that is essential to success in work as well as in life, as you've underscored in this conversation. The other thing I would just leave people with is this is a time to be worried about a lot of things. And a lot of people are spending their time being worried. And I would say, you know, it's definitely understandable to feel alarm at many of the trends in society and many of the events and many of the threats from uh, authoritarians at home and abroad, et cetera. At the same time, we have shown we can change things. We have shown we can win. And we are not the only ones in history who have done that. And now is a time when our country needs us, when our freedom needs us, when the world needs us, and when the kind of life we want to have on this planet needs us. And so all of us need to stop obsessing about all the bad things and focus on the pathway forward. And the pathway forward in this country right now at this moment, more than anything else, is to vote and to turn out the vote and to get in power people who, even if they're not perfect, are going to move us in the right direction and upon whom we can build. And that's what we need to be doing now, whether it's from a gay perspective, from a trans perspective, from a perspective of a woman, from the perspective of an immigrant, all of us who are under attack, while focusing on the work we need to do in our own particular uh, concern, need to really be thinking about how we can reinvigorate and defend our republic. And uh, that's my call to action for today. Evan, it's been an absolute honor and pleasure. Uh, where can people follow you, tune in, follow your work and thoughts today? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Evan Wolfson uh, is the thing. I think I have two Facebook pages, one a personal one and one a, a, a you know, a, whatever they call it, uh, a public figure uh, page. And if people have a specific question, they're welcome to email me at evan at freedomtomarry.org. Terrific. Thank you so much, Evan Wolfson. It's been yeah, an thank absolute you, pleasure. Good luck. listening to this podcast, you have to check out The Gay Man's Life Coach at jonathanherzogcoach.com. It is the community of gay men transforming their lives to feel better and get exactly what they want. Join us at jonathanherzogcoach.com and book a one-on-one -on -one consult today. And if you have one minute, it would be so awesome if you could leave a review on this podcast so we can help spread the word and help more gay men. See you soon.